Dr. Koontz, how much interest may I loan my money out at without risking the threat to usury that Psalm 15 implies? <laughs> well, the classical answer is uh, just to be safe, zero interest. That's kind of um, where, where I was at. I, I looked yeah. up the word usury in the Hebrew and it said interest. And I'm like, huh. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The The shifting on this is something that I will probably, it, it's going to be its own series on uh, the history of money. But this is this is something where Christian antiquity is very clear cut. Even Christians down to roughly the 19th century are generally pretty clear cut with the exception of Jesuits and, and Calvin largely. And after that, nobody's clear cut. And so the question, you know, is this something that can happen in the world and the world's not going to fall apart if usury occurs? Sure, I suppose so. Is that actually something that you yourself want to engage in? Wouldn't you rather just give something as a gift or at most as a loan that will be paid back well, since you're not using the money while okay. he needs it? That's part of the gift nature is that's something that has gone the way of all flesh and usury is just kind of like native to most of how we live, but it's described in antiquity and also by people like Thomas Jefferson and the not, not at all a Lutheran, but the last person to care a lot about this was the poet Ezra Pound, who has a, a rather beautiful poem called Usura that is just a description compiled from medieval descriptions of how usury acts like a canker or like a cancer and it eats up everything that is fed to it. Yeah. So like you say, why not just give it as a gift? Well, my index fund wasn't given to the, you know, the company I use that manages index funds as a gift. It was given as a retirement investment. You know, and I'm honestly really wrestling with this. I don't want you to give you know financial advice because you can't. Neither of us can. And this podcast isn't about that. So no one should take any financial advice <laughs> right. from us on this. But I really am trying to figure out, you know, do I want to stay in the stock market or not? And, and I'm diversified enough that it's not just in stocks. It's not a blah, 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 blah. But I'm, I'm yeah. bothered by it, especially what you tuned me on to months, months, months ago, uh, the state of Delaware. And the senator from the state of Delaware is no longer a senator and, and all the money that's flowing through there and the future enslavement of American populace through debt slavery and, and all of this. It's like, well, yeah. what, am I, what am I a part of here? You are a part of a world grown fat on usury. So if you can't or, or won't or both can't and won't uh, get rid of all, your, all this fat at once by yourself or even in your own life, then you at least want to mitigate it. I think it's significant that if you read enough uh, classics on investing, that we all realize that Benjamin Graham and the intelligent investor, when he distinguished between speculation and investment, <laughs> was really just distinguishing between time horizons. It's all, in a sense, <laughs> gambling. Hmm. And, you know, that could be justified. That could be the nature of enterprise to some degree. Okay. Uh, you could be actually investing rather than speculating and following very closely the corporate reporting from your investments. That's That could be okay. Um, this is another example where I think ways that we have often answered uh, ethical questions have been too black so that when the perspective changes on it, that perspective becomes too white. It was gray to begin with. And that's the nature of the beast. The Bible is pretty much always talking about my personal handling of money. I either go into debt in order to obtain or put someone else in debt personally in order to benefit from. And that is forbidden that I should go through the earth as if I owned anything, actually, really, because I will take nothing with me when I die. That's a little bit different from making an investment in someone else's enterprise, which is technically what I'm doing when I'm buying stock. But the issue here is that we have now been building a world on usury for a very long time, hundreds of years at least. Certainly in the English-speaking world, a very long, the Bank of England is very old. <laughs> So if we've been doing that, what has been the result? 
has it been the things that our forefathers in the church told us would happen if we devoted ourselves to usury? Yes, we have grown selfish and fat and callous. We're all rich fools now. So how we come back from that, I don't want to be insanely prescriptive and say, yes, liquidate your retirement assets today. Then you won't go to hell. I don't know that. And I'm sure everyone has bigger problems than what their 403B or 401k is doing right now. However, this is just like what we talked about last week. If we don't have a conversation about this, it's not like it's going to get better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Yeah. One of the arguments made for why it's okay to make use of two embryos partially kept alive in Petri dishes for 40 plus odd years in order to make vaccines out of them is that they are far enough removed from us as an evil that that evil no longer really should be considered an evil to the private conscience. I think that's sophistry. I just I just don't buy it even a little bit. And that comes back to where, you know, my understanding of investing has always been that the index fund is a valuable thing because it, it naturally balances your portfolio. But as a result, you got your finger in everything. Everything. And yeah, that's for my conscience. Your, you, just, you do have your finger in everything. And there are legitimate financial arguments that index funds do when they reach a certain scale, which they definitely have now. You know, and this is a, you know, <laughs> I, I generally love Jack Bogle just as a human being, but, you know, and he has a response to this, but when index funds reach a certain percentage of investments, and they're especially easy to do with, you know, automated investment, which is how much of our financial transactions occur, right? Both securities and other, other kinds of investments at this point, they occur automatically. So index funds need to be rebalanced constantly. And, and that's what's happening that that actually represents malinvestment because a spread over the entirety of you know what's available in the market uh, at any given time may not actually be the wisest possible course of action, either for an individual investor or for the society that's authorizing this market to exist, right? We recognize by having something like the SEC that there is some kind of moral oversight required, even in Delaware, <laughs> for securities trading. So if that's the case, then what is the nature of that moral oversight? And the classical critique of that world is not so much and wasn't when this was discussed, even in the English speaking world, which is kind of at the forefront of these things, is not so much that all of these investment vehicles are completely illegitimate. Or if you bet with your buddy when you're you know, 10 years old that you can you know, beat him in a race, and then he has to give you, you know, some candy when you win, that that is like evil, and you're going to go to hell because of that. The arguments are more diverse than that. For example, if I devote myself to this kind of passive investing, and I don't know what's going on, not only do I sort of have a finger in every pie. So here I am profiting from Moderna's stock rising on something that I know is unethical. In addition to that, you know, so I'm making, I'm making just a little bit of money every time they begin to vaccinate a four-year-old. In addition to that, I also may not actually, you know, be investing in what I think I'm investing in because I don't really know because I'm really just trying to assure that I profit, yeah, not that good things are furthered under, you know, the sun. And so that that idea that goodness needs to be furthered primarily and not my money is the basic place to start when you're trying to think about these things if you never have before. Yeah, that word profit is just so key, not P-R-O-F, yeah. no, P-H, right? P-R-O-F. The desire to profit is what runs so counter to what you said earlier, your belief that none of it's really yours because you can't take it with you. And so whatever you right. appear to have as profit is merely the illusion of the moment and nothing more. And in fact, what would you even want that for but for your fat belly and to continue <laughs> having your fat belly, right? I mean, it's, right. It's, it's so palpably real and close to us, right? And yet, as we generally have talked about these things, they're they're very far away. 
away. And that, again, brings us back to the proximity of evil. I'm not sure that being far away from evil makes it okay for you to still have a part in it. And that is where my conscience is wrestling with this publicly, lest someone out there accuse me of actually teaching on this matter at the moment. So thank you for answering that question. And in that then, I mean... I, I, even in <laughs> Delaware, it's just so good. Uh, a man for all seasons, men for all seasons, and the season we are in uh, has a lot to do with with Delaware. So that's a nice seg, I think. <laughs> it it does because the season that we are in is kind of like winter in Delaware. And I used to live in Delaware. The senator from MBNA was my senator, one of my senators. And winter in Delaware is just kind of pointless. It doesn't get that cold, so it's never charming or snow covered, at least for very long. It's very wet. It's gray. And then it's over. And spring is nice, but winter is just ugly and stupid and and pointless. Okay. And so that, that idea that we are in a kind of winter, it feels like a fallow period for lots of things, plummeting fertility rates, plummeting IQs in Western countries. What is going on? Will anything ever get better? And people get very depressed by that. And the reason that we talked about Justinian this week, and we'll refer to him several times, I hope, this week as well, is because he does not let himself stay in winter. I think the kind of passivity that is natural when you're looking at the seasons in a given place, how long or hot is summer, how long or cold is winter, how long does spring last? Do you really have a fall or does it pass very quickly? Those aren't things you can do a whole lot about. We can talk about the history of the idea of climate change, but personally, I'm extremely skeptical that I can do a whole lot about, you know, the movements of the sun, the moon, the stars and the seasons. Okay. You don't have to look at the life of a civilization or a nation or a church or a family in the same way, because those are human groups. And human beings are much more changeable than you might expect. Example that we talked about last week, part of the terror of the plague, okay, not COVID, the actual plague is that someone could be here healthy walking around and be dead tomorrow. Sudden death, sudden death, not intubated, not hospitalized, not vaccinated, breakthrough, then dies. Nope here today, gone tomorrow. Okay. And that idea of sudden death can also go in the opposite direction. A person can be a perfectly peaceful member of society one day, and the next day be one of the people burning down the church that was on the site of the Hagia Sophia before that building was built after the riots were over and after Justinian had sustained and persevered through the challenge to his throne. So people are very changeable. And I think that when people get depressed, either about themselves, about their own lives, or about the life of their civilization, the life of their nation, what they're really doing is treating life as if it's just like the weather. And therefore, oh, I can't do a whole lot about it. I'm just miserable. The nation is horrible. My family, you know, whatever the problem is. And they do nothing. And the problem is when we use the word calling or the word vocation, We mean both something given, the vocation, the calling, but we also mean a course of action attendant upon that vocation. This is obvious in certain things. You're called to be a mother, but you refuse to change your children's diapers. Well, there's a big problem here. But we don't extend those really obvious lessons. I'm called to be a son and listen to my father. We don't extend those obvious close to home lessons to other things. So the the reason that people find it so easy just to comply with the kind of brain worms put into their minds or the you know mandates handed down or whatever might happen to them, the reason that's easier is because although it involves some set of actions, oh, wear your mask, get your vaccine, whatever, is because it doesn't require you to exercise agency even in your own life, let alone in the life of your city or your state or your nation, your family's life, your church's life, you don't actually have to have agency. You just have to enforce, even on yourself, the agency of other people. 
So you get to forego the idea that you're actually an independent human being, not independent of all other human helps or something, okay? But that you are physically and spiritually independent. You have your own body and your own eternal soul, and you're not, you know, four years old, so you can care for those things and need to. You get to abdicate even that minor amount of agency in your life that would say, you're responsible for how you work. You're responsible for your family. You're responsible for your church. You're responsible for your city. Nope. You just have to listen to what they tell you to do. So if they tell you that your family is going to be something that's going to be determined by the TV. So when your son comes to you and wants to wear a dress and wants you to call him by a different name, you just need to accept that. Even though it's your family, you need to accept that. I mean, I think people don't see this sufficiently clearly because they're not good because they don't have enough quiet as we talked about last week. They're not good at seeing the connections between different parts of their lives. Your kids are rebelling against you and hate you for the same reason that you have to wear a mask everywhere you go and get vaccinated so you can go out to eat like you're accustomed to doing. The reason is but those, those things are both places where you have abdicated responsibility for your own life, your family's life, your city's life, your state's life, your nation's life. And once you, once you get rid of that, once you just say, hey, life is, it's like the weather, you know, I can't do anything about it. What am I supposed to do? Once that happens, now you're a slave. So you see, I mean, Justinian could have said, okay, I'll just be a slave to history. We've been losing for roughly a hundred years and we lost, (laughs) we are the Romans and we lost Rome. So here we are. I guess I'll just keep losing. I guess I'll just accept that. No big deal. What am I supposed to do? Okay. Because emperors had lost before him. So it's not even enough that he's the emperor because emperors have lost. When you begin to think about living in season and out of season, okay? That is persevering, enduring, and even flourishing even in winter. Now you have broken the kind of control that people want over you, which is the capacity to determine the weather for you, to tell you it's winter now, so do this. Now it's summer, so do what I say. That can be broken as soon as you say, I'm responsible for my family. I'm responsible for my life. I'm responsible for my city. Probably not solely. You have a spouse. You have other people that live with, you know, in your city. You have other people in your church, whatever it is, right? Not solely, but yes, you are. You are responsible, right? See how even slaves are addressed by the Bible as people who are responsible for their lives, okay? It doesn't even say, hey, you're going to change this right away. Oh, you're not going to be a slave. Now that you became a Christian, you don't have to be a slave anymore. They can't do anything about it right away. Maybe they can't get out of slavery right away. But if that's where you are, and that's how your life is, and that's the hand you've been dealt right now, why don't you take responsibility for it? And that idea that you can flourish even in winter is one that I really want to press home because Justinian is someone who in his own life turns winter for his nation into spring. Okay. Because in human life, we do not live as if things were just happening to us. Things do happen to us, things out of our control, even horrible things, but it is up to us what we do with those things and about those things. So, so this reminds me of a conversation we had. You were in town last weekend for one of our events at church. Thank you for coming. And you talked about how, and I've really just gone over this again and again in my head, how significant conversations aren't really the norm of life. And what I've, what I've struggled with out of that is how much I hunger for significant conversations, at least in this season. And so I guess my question is a little bit uh, like, (laughs) is there a time when uh, what matters matters more than it did before? And is that not kind of what you're getting at, I guess? What matters does matter more because when you have a sense that it could go away, 
it changes your perspective. And so I guess I'm not saying more like objectively before a car crash in which I'm worried that my children will die objectively, somehow they now matter more now that the crash is over and they survived. But the things that we're speaking about are not just about objective realities, like what is going on in the world? What's, you know, what are the threats? What are the promises? You know, what, what could happen, but how do we react to those things? And there is a more in matter more for my own awareness of life and the preciousness of life after I survived the car crash. So that is also why we've been saying collapse already happened. So you can stop worrying about everything that could happen in the future, because what are you going to do about it before it does? I'm asking that rhetorically, but I'm also asking that non-rhetorically. What are you going to do about it before it does in the sense that don't let your life be governed by things that haven't even happened yet that could? Non-rhetorically in the sense that your planning and your capabilities are much more important than your capacity to predict the future. That's why I'm not you know, sitting here today saying, hey, here's what's going to happen. So invest in this scheme I came up with, right? I'm not doing financial advice, right? I would do that if I wanted both to profit from you guys, but also if I actually thought that the whole point of all of this was to predict the future. Knowing the past makes you a much better predictor of the future, but that's not the point. You never know perfectly what will occur. You never know perfectly what did occur. The point is that based on observed experience, both in your own life and of history, you are much better able to understand what will matter. So if I know that, for instance, in Justinian's life, it mattered a lot that he was loyal and commanded loyalty, maybe my human relationships and the quality of those in whatever, you know, the family, the church, whatever, maybe that's a lot more important than a certain number of cans of beans stored in my pantry, even if I am storing cans of beans in my pantry, right? Maybe those human connections and things I can rely upon in other people are at least as important, if not more than the material preparation that I may be making, right? And I should be making. So those those are things I think that are easily forgotten because people either get overwhelmed, lose agency. Oh, it's just going to be bad. I don't know what to do. Or they, they place stock in things that historically just don't matter as much as, for instance, the capacity to have cohesive groups. Material preparations will fail you and you can endure if you have a cohesive group. It doesn't go the other way around. That was my favorite thing you said out of that that conversation at the dinner table was, you know, the question was sort of like, okay, so there's these guys locally and, you know, they're they're good guys, they're not preppers exactly, but they're kind of thinking the way we think and all this and stuff. And like and yeah. like so is it a good move to like invest my time in them as people's like, you should do that anyway. Like they're, <laughs> right. they're, they're similar yeah. minded people. Like you should be getting to know and care for the people who see the world you do and building yeah. trust and influence with each other in that or loyalty, you know, is what trust and influence is it, it, with each other, no matter what. And then yeah. we're in fact uh, better prepared than we have been. In fact, that's the solution to what we've lost, which is the ability right. to know your neighbor and speak with your neighbor. And that's part of why everything's falling apart. So that, that was just unbelievably insightful uh, on your part. Um, not, I shouldn't say that as if you're not the most insightful guy on the show. Um, did you get that? Well, get that? <laughs> I, I think that, I think it, it has to do with something that I think people get stressed out about, which is how many things are necessary to be done. Yeah. And, and this is, this is true. Even if the world seems to be going wonderfully and, and everything's great for you personally or for your nation or whatever, that there are always an apparently infinite multitude of things that, that need to be done by somebody. That's always true. The way to live a life that is worthwhile as you are living it, rather than later on when you're retired and you imagine that you'll start actually living, is to understand that wisdom itself, which is you know the companion that you're seeking more than anything else in Proverbs, wisdom is, is simple. 
It is the fear of a, a life in the fear of God. You will gain the multiple necessary things as he sees fit. So you don't need to worry as the Gentiles do, as the nations do, and be in turmoil as they're pictured being in, you know, like Psalm 2. The reason, part of the reason they're in turmoil is that they don't understand that necessities are actually taken care of by a father. Yeah. And because of that, they're in turmoil, they're in chaos, they're at war with themselves and with one another. So there are always tons of things that could be done and do need to be done. Your focus is what, as we talked about last week, is what will provide you with the capacity to do what needs to be done and only what needs to be done. And when it does need to be done, rather than worrying about what could happen. And along the way, things actually fulfilling, such as cohesive human relationships in groups where you can actually trust the other people will occur. And then whether everything falls apart or not in your, you know, area, life will still be wonderfully rich. To reframe all of that again, back from that same conversation, it, it would seem that uh, where my own heart is and and others that we're talking uh, is an over-focus on, on the game plan rather than a recognition that there's, there's no game. Uh, in, instead, there is uh, there is living in the moment. And it makes me, and, you know, the ability to focus, it makes me think then also, as you talk about Justinian and how he went through a an attack on his reign within his own city, it destroyed much of the city. And we think, wow, he's an amazing guy because he survived and then he built some amazing stuff afterwards. Yeah. But in one sense, what you're pushing at, I think, is that his real value is there even if he lost. And that the way he lived his life is one that even if he is on the throne and someone comes in at the last moment and it's all falling apart, he didn't have enough there, God kicks him off the throne, he's dead, it doesn't change his placement in, say, Dante's Paradiso. No, no. I mean, he would say slightly different things, probably be less prominent because he is so historically prominent. But the point here is not the attainment of a certain amount of stuff that you've already envisioned, because if you are an ambitious person, the things that you desire will always be far more than the things that you achieve. That is part of the frustration. And that's okay. That's, that's realistic. He did not achieve all that he set out to achieve. The entirety of the empire, as it was at its greatest extent, you know, 300 years earlier was not, was not attained. It was not brought back. So we all desire far more than we can actually bring to pass. That's okay. Your idea of what rule might be is necessary in order to inspire you to action. The reality of renewal, if it should be granted to you in whatever sphere, however big or small, the reality of it will not be precisely as you imagine. It may be greater. It may be more wonderful. It may be smaller. It may be somewhat disappointing. You don't act in view of, you know, merely your desires, because those will always be to some degree off. And that is life. Our capacity to know is always fragmentary. And the sooner that you accept that and then act nonetheless, the better. If you are waiting for a time when your knowledge of the future or this other person or whatever it is that your object is, If you're waiting for a time when that knowledge is complete, then you're going to be waiting basically forever because you're, you're never going to turn into God. So you will never have complete knowledge and you're not called to act on the basis of complete knowledge of everything and what's going to happen in every circumstance. So obsession with planning is I think largely a cope for inaction. Hmm. Is it something prevalent among young men or do older men have the same problem? I think older men have less of a problem with this because partly because their life has been much less mediated than younger men's lives. And that the more that your life is mediated, the more on some level passive you have been made, even where 
in the case of lots of kinds of video games or how you were told to behave socially, uh, you had to be really nice, which just didn't come naturally to any group of men ever anywhere. Which army was the nicest? Who cares? You know, those, those forms of intense mediation, especially for men, have been, I think, corrosive internally. So it's not just that, you know, your mom made you dress up nice and wear tight shoes for family pictures, right? But then that was over. It was that your whole life was smothered. And that corrodes people internally in a way that temporary restraints that could actually be salutary. You can't wear whatever you want for family pictures. You should look nice. Those temporary restraints were comparatively nothing relative to the way that your life was turned inward or lived indoors or lots of other things that are true, the younger, the demographic for men you go, right? So, you know, if previous generations had to dress up at least once a week and wear uncomfortable clothes to church, they got to roam around a lot the other six days of the week, generally, even in a city. <laughs> and so the, the strictures placed on life were not nearly so great. And I think especially for men and therefore for the political functioning of a nation, the capacity to develop yourself as a man, that is to, to try and to fail at things that you could call competency or strength, but would be called in Justinian's native tongue, virtu right? Virtue, that is the quality of manhood. The word man is contained in the word virtue. The Latin word for man is contained in the word virtue. So virtue is in this sense, quite literally the becoming a man, not just biochemically, but also in inside one's soul. That process can't take place where the man and his natural desire to conquer enemies or achieve goals or something is pushed inside a video game or is limited by the constant refrain that, you know, the girls are the best ones in the class or, you know, the women do everything at the church when that's limited. I'm what I'm really interested in is not so is, is, is what's happening spiritually at a very small individualized level. But because of that spiritual reality, what I'm really interested in is what this does civilizationally. So let me give you an example in the present day, because this isn't a problem for Justinian, right? In the present day, if you have a kid that's sitting there with the kind of native abilities that Justinian has, right? Maybe he's 14 and his dad lets him listen to the show or something. And he spends most of his life, you know, experiencing matriarchal realities and then the, the places and times where he's allowed to exercise himself, that is to try and to fail, to maybe get hurt doing something and to learn from it, or to be with other men in doing it is largely in video games. Well, I understand why he plays video games for six hours a day. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's nothing else, right? And the tragedy there is that what that does civilizationally, or let's say a little more concretely politically, what that does is that that means that the men of the country have never, they have no acquaintance with acceptance of responsibility, which is in the nature of not just human life, but specifically in terms of protection, the use of salutary violence, the use of discipline, the growth of brotherhood. Those things are all necessary politically and civilizationally. So I don't know how to be a man because the only places that I've ever been a man in any kind of historically recognizable way have all been safely confined to a sphere that has no bearing on life. And that is, that, that is the civilizational crisis. Yeah. And that has already collapsed. Yeah. So if we are rebuilding, then we have everything to gain and nothing to lose because it's already gone. We already have a civilization of women who are sad and discontented because men do not rule and of men who have no acquaintance with the art of command, even of their families, let alone obviously of their country. So if that's gone, great. We can admit that. And now we can begin to rebuild. It makes me think of uh, a story from just last night. Um, I think this connects. Uh, 
I've been taking some martial arts jujitsu here for about a, a month and a half now. And uh, last night we were having to do uh, a move where you are to wrap your arm around the head of a person with them bowed down in front of you, grab your arm by your other arm, walk forward, lift your chest and choke them until they gag. Um, then uh, they practice <clears throat> pulling back on your arm and tripping you till they land on top of you. Then from where they are, taking their elbow and dragging it across your chin, smashing your face into the ground. And from there, attempting to do another move to, to finish. And the instructor had to stop us all for a moment and say, don't make me do this. I have to do this. Okay, I'm going to give the speech on not being nice. I understand. This is your partner. This is your friend. We're all here. We all like each other. But if you won't actually put pressure on their face and make them feel a little bit of pain, then when you're in a situation where you actually have to do this, you won't do it then either. But if you'll just do it a little bit here, put some pressure, feel the pain, what you'll find is when you're adrenalized in a real fight, you'll do it and you'll do it harder. Now, I like the story, but I'll, I'll confess as well, the hardest thing about stepping onto the jujitsu mat has been my willingness to hurt other people. I have found it consistently pressing against me. I'm concerned about the person I'm trying to choke. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and this is understandable. And yet we're all there for the same reason. It's why I'm doing it, honestly, is to face this very uh, malformed part of my soul uh, in an environment wherein uh, we want to be men and women that are there uh, who are able to handle pressure situations, who are able to handle uh, the fact that there might, what you call it earlier, the, um, the civil use of violence. Is that what you called it? You had a great way of talking about, you know, the need for focused violence under command. Um, but that it is very much, very much at the heart of the problem. Uh, we are we are too afraid of pain. In all the things that I have learned from jiu-jitsu so far, uh, one of the most beneficial is just how good pain is for me. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's yeah. really amazing. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is a myth uh, extending into 80s teen movies and lots of other things is the idea that somehow the nerds who have no acquaintance with physical pain are the good people. And the really cruel people are the people who experience physical pain all the time, at least in sports, which are the jocks. And I have found, you know, listener free to disagree. This is anecdotal, but I have found that it is instead the people who have great acquaintance with pain, who are the most merciful and kind, even though the most capable of using violence well and effectively, whereas those who have never experienced physical pain haven't done manual labor, did not play any sports, those people don't know their own limits. And that is extremely dangerous. Mm. So I think that acquaintance with pain is salutary, both for yourself, for your improvement, for your change, but it, it also allows you to, I mean, pain is sort of the physical version of the kinds of conversations that we've been talking about having this week and last week, which is necessary and difficult ones. If we can't talk about it, if we can't talk about usury, or we can't talk about, is it actually good that you want this or that you're in this position or whatever, if that cannot be said, or if you can't even say it to yourself, that is, you can't actually handle this pain, then maybe if you cannot handle pain, you should not be in any kind of position of command because you don't know what it's like. Because for instance, if I, this is just on a very low level, if I discipline my children, I keep in mind what it was like to be a child. That doesn't mean that I cannot be stern with my children, but I will not overdo it because I am acquainted with the pain of being disciplined as a five-year-old or you know a young man or whatever even though it was necessary and we honor our fathers for disciplining us. You know, that's what it says in Hebrews. And it's, that's true. I'm very grateful to my father for discipline, but as I exercise that discipline, there will be mercy alongside of it, you know, and the salutary use of violence is not violence for its own sake. It's violence for the sake of protection of what is threatened by those who are illegitimately violent. That's the point right? You don't have to enjoy shooting the intruder. You do it so that your family can sleep in peace. That's the point. Only evil men use violence for its own sake. Yeah, for pleasure. 
But, <laughs> but those who have no acquaintance with violence are much closer to the evil because likewise they have no concept of what violence does to people absolutely can i can i jump on that again cuz yeah go for it in in jiu-jitsu it takes a long time to get your belts but the, the new white belt is the most dangerous white belt the brand new guy precisely because they have no idea what they're doing and every move they make is it's not too weak it's too strong it's too fast right. it's too hard and it is by learning to slow down and control your your motion uh, that yeah. you become able to actually stop somebody rather than just accidentally hurt your partner and so it's, it's very very real and and so for the the person as myself who grew up uh not exclusively on video games i did play a couple sports but you know all, largely inside of boxes the mm. overreactive nature of my defense systems is yeah. is definitely there yeah yeah and right. uh yeah um to try to pull this back to the the seasons talk then uh, winter is a season of supreme discomfort for a lot of people and pain and discomfort. You know, there's, there's that connection there. Um, from that point, I want to, I want to have you talk more about this, a man for all seasons idea, because yeah. we've only really talked about winter and spring so far. And uh, maybe this connects to this build influence, build loyalty, build trust with those locally, because that's an all seasonal thing. But I think, I think there's more there for you to pull out. Yeah. Yeah, because the idea of all seasons is that Justinian can recognize that something needs to be rebuilt physically in, you know, the church is destroyed by the Nikah riots, or something needs to be clarified in the case of the laws that we discussed, or this is how you retake uh, this area that's been under, you know, the domain of the Visigoths for however long, whatever the case might be. This is why the liberal arts classically did not trained people in some narrow set of skills, because the idea was that especially in positions of leadership, you needed someone who had general capacities. And that especially in governance, whether of the church or the state, you did not want someone who was narrowly focused. You wanted someone with broad acquaintance, broad knowledge, who could then move into specifics when necessary, but did not need, therefore, you were not training managers. You were training people to be kings. And to be a king is something very different than to be a manager. A lot of people confuse the two because in our season, civilizationally right now, managers think that they're kings. People who really are complete slaves to the desires and the dictates of others think that they're kings because they make a lot of money. Kingship is not identical to the income that you personally have. Kingship is the salutary exercise of authority for the good of those under you. We could call it fatherhood at a lower level or whatever you want to do. Yeah, Pendragon. Um, it's a good word, Pendragon. <laughs> I'm, I mean, he, you know, he sleeps with his with his rival's wife. I mean, yeah, 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 I don't yeah, yeah. know. I it's, don't know your lore. So I don't, I don't exactly know what that means. It, well, I'm throwing it out there because of the sons of Solomon at sons of Solomon.net and the Pendragon principle, which is a bit of a riddle in a game. And that's all. Okay. Okay. But I, so I think that what being a man for all seasons means is general preparation of any kind and accepting certain unities, such as the unity of knowledge. So you should be interested in a variety of kinds of knowledge and the unity of, for instance, mind and body. So if your mind is very healthy, but your body is very unwell, that will affect mind and body and drag them both down. So that, that will ready you not for predicting the future, but for being as best prepared as you possibly can be. So the capacity to gain capacity is really what we're after here. And then that allows you to pivot with the season for what really needs to be done. Right. Channeling your focus into the moment. And in that way, also able to be aware of the others around you who will often be the best, not tool, but tool uh, for getting things done, you know, each other. So, yeah. all right. The last Roman, the last American. Last Roman is a phrase that's used for people like Justinian. It's used of others in historians' estimation, but the idea that he is completely conscious of what came before him, 
but is partly due to his own, the changes that he himself works, you know, of the documents, the legal documents that he promulgates. The last of them is actually written in Greek, which is a new thing, but they had to in order to be understood. So he's on the cusp of some great change, but he's completely aware of what comes before him and is trying to preserve it. And I think is very successful in doing so civilizationally. So the idea of the last Roman, it may be that, that some of us are the last American as such, that in the future, we will not be typical of America if we are somehow typical of the past, but that that can also itself be salutary. I mean, I don't hope to be the last American. That, <laughs> that would be a tragedy in my eyes. But the idea of someone who is singularly invested in the renewal of his people or whatever it might be, using the resources of the past to do so. That you are not cut off from your past. And that's, that's why I, I love to stress for people that our country and its way of life are the result not only and not even so much of you know the Constitution or something, as nice as that might be, but of the people who settled a land, right? And that inheritance is not something that I will cast away, right? I have never, I mean, I, I've joked about it, but I would never move to, you know, Siberia or somewhere that I thought was, you know, easier to have the views on life that I have or something. This is my country. And running away from that is simply trying to run away from winter. This is the season right now. I will do what I can to make spring come. Yeah, for those who don't agree with you, it's harder to get out of this country than you think. They don't want us. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I read a whole book about it. They, they really don't want us. It's very difficult to do. Um, uh, and since we're going to be moving into Hollywood shortly yeah. in, in next yeah. week and all, um, you know, we might as well just reference the last of the Mohicans and the last samurai, which probably are very closely connected to the similar idea and, and both decent movies, as I recall them, Tom Cruise notwithstanding. Uh, so from there. Uh, yeah. Not the Benedict option, but the Justinian option. I think we talked about the Benedict option way, we way did. early, yeah. like the first couple yeah. of, of podcasts. And so if I can maybe recap that, uh, your your greatest concern with Dreher, aside from the fact that apparently he sold out to the entire vaccine mandate reality, um, is the retreat versus attack mentality that uh, he yes. seems to have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And just the, the Justinian option. And I chose this especially because Justinian is also a Christian layman which is always going to be the vast majority of Christians. It's much more applicable, even if you are a clergyman for your people than saying, let's all retreat under my aegis as if the Missouri Senate never did this before. Let's all retreat to this place where we'll just, we won't be touched because no matter where you go, you will have to defend yourself somehow. So it, it is, I think much better to think, okay, what can I take back what can I recover? In Justinian's case, it was the city after the riots or the empire after its dissolution in the West in 476 prior to his birth. Okay, what can I take back? What can I extend? What can I clarify in the case of the laws? Not how can I get away? Because even if you were left alone, what good would that do? Why are you ceding ground, right? Even in the most conservative states, we have political battles to fight, uh, sometimes intense ones. The terms are different than in a state like Massachusetts or California or something, but the battles are there. There's nowhere you can go that you are not, that you will not have to be militant. So why not choose to accept that and live in view of that rather than saying, where can I go so that I can just, you know, turn the clock back and you know, everything will be kind of nice because that's not going to happen. At the risk of offending all of our female viewers in this age, which is impossible not to do, being militant, right? I mean, that's it, a very unfeminine thing to do. And yeah. to, to retreat into a place where you will never have to be militant is to continue the problem, I would say. Yeah. And I mean, and I, I think to to go into a place where you do not have to fight should come naturally to women 
and, and it's wholesome and good because they should be protected hmm. for a man to want to retreat into a place where he doesn't have to fight is despicable. Hmm. What else is he called to other than fighting? We've got a few minutes left here still in terms of our clock. And yeah. I want to come into that then fighting you yeah. mentioned political battles and in various places. So if you're going to move to Idaho, it's not like it's all roses. You're going to have to do your fighting there too. Um, but another part of our conversation the past weekend was Illinois' third world-ish kind of reality. I mean, if you go into the city <laughs> of Chicago, you're definitely going to be in the Gestapo state. You know, it's it's they have a lot of power there. The further you get out, the more you realize that, that maybe it's the Mexican drug cartels that actually run this neck of the woods. And, yeah. well, that's a political battle, isn't it now? It's just yeah. very different rules. It's a, yeah. Go right. for it. Yeah, it's a different it's a different battle. And so I think I think that one of the things to think about if you're, you know, if you're not able to move to your dream place or you get to your dream place and you realize that, you know, the political battles are different than the place that you left, that you you can't go anywhere under the sun without being militant. Then you just have to realize that these are the battles you have to fight. There will be no perfect place. There could be better places, and I'm not going to judge anyone's choice to go there or not to go there. That's up to you. When you are where you are going to be, whether you just moved there or you've been there your whole life, figure out what the battles are and start fighting them. The idea that you can go somewhere where there won't be battles, that, that's the real danger. It, and it could be that the battles that you're used to fighting are, like you said, in the case of a place that may now be governed, let's say, let's say delicately, informally, hmm. rather yeah. than formally, yeah, privately rather than publicly, is simply a different set of battles. And you're, you're right about that. That's, that's all that is. Okay. It may not be something you want to fight, or it may be something that you're much more willing to fight than trying to overturn, you know, in the case of Illinois, machine politics. Yeah. You know, originating in Chicago. I think you got Whatever a lot you, more more uh possibility to talk to the drug lord in your neighborhood than you do to deal with <laughs> any of the senators down in Springfield. I mean it's just, yeah, it just I, they're gonna actually listen to you probably. That, that I don't know. I mean that could be, I don't know. I I, I think that the 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 difficulty people have is simply accepting that the world could change that way because they even while people that were exercising agency were very consciously changing the seasons going from 2008 even Barack Obama's against gay marriage to now you misgendered somebody so you deserve to rot in hell they they have agency they exercise it they want to change the seasons even while they were doing that, they were telling you, you know, hey, just keep consuming stuff. You know, this is what you were meant for. You know, you went to college to get a good job so you could consume stuff and maybe go on vacation a couple of times a year. So a lot of us are very unaware of how fast the world has changed and therefore also how fast the world could change. And the sooner that you accept that speed not necessarily of your own life, but of the way that things change and governing realities change. And now maybe you will have to govern yourself rather than waiting for someone to govern you since he will be malicious. Well, that's just the way it is now, wherever you are. So I think that, you know, time travel is not possible. You can't go back to a past anywhere. But uh, militancy, wholesome militancy is possible right now, wherever you are. It seems to me that a major problem, kind of maybe to close our, our last five minutes with this, a major problem that we face is Christianity's own self-understanding, at least in the modern times, of swords into plowshares being something that is a ethical virtue applied to the present age. And uh, as opposed to the idea that on this side of the grave, there will not be peace without a sword. Yeah. So can, can you make that case for the Christians listening, especially that uh, the idea of pacifism is is not 
the New Testament ethic and that the idea of a righteous sword is not something that's like a necessary evil even, uh, but so it is in <laughs> fact a good, a very yeah, good thing. Yeah. No, it's a very good thing when it does what it's ordained to do, which is to punish evil and reward goodness. The disciples are obviously engaged in concealed carry because they have a couple swords on hand, just not enough. And Jesus doesn't need them to defend him at that moment. So fewer swords than each of them could have is okay, because at that point he commends his his life into the hands of the father. But the use of the sword is salutary and is necessary under the sun. David was not sinning when he beheaded Goliath. He was not doing anything wrong. And the idea that being a Christian man is simply rolling over when your wife tells you what to do or the government tells you what to do is the reason we got here. Because men would not accept responsibility for themselves. Could have been any number of reasons that that didn't happen, but that's how we got here. If they will accept responsibility for themselves in their families and in their state and in their churches, we will do well. It will not be easy, but we will do well. And we can live with a good conscience as David did when he outwitted Saul and beheaded Goliath. So the sword is not so much for the propagation of the faith, but rather for the conquering of evil because evil attacks. And if all you will do is defend and then wait and then defend and then wait, uh, evil isn't going to stop. It's multiplex. It is malicious and it knows no quarter whatsoever. Uh, it is that idea of knowing no quarter um, that we need to adopt toward evil itself. I recently finished, finished reading through a work called A House Swept Clean. I can kind of recommend it as an initial Lutheran look at demonology in English, which is pretty good. Uh, one of the main thrusts coming out of the back of the book is, you know, the moment you find yourself in an exorcism, just remember, there's no quarter here, either side. Like, you don't, you don't get to kind of be nice to the evil thing that wants to do nothing but lie, deceive, steal, and destroy. And as you and I think talked about uh, recently, again, you, you, you call yourself almost a Calvinist. Like, w- did we forget that the natural born man is, uh, is just that in his flesh from the start? You don't have to be possessed by a spirit other than your own in order to do great wicked things with pure selfish intent and no quarter for anyone but your own belly. In that way, then, if you don't see any good men stopping that, it means now's the time to be that good man. Mm-hmm. It's now the time to to grow into that man if you're just a boy. And yeah, a lot of us are well, talking right now and listening uh, because we're realizing that's what we must do. So, well, I'm going to let you close it from there. You weren't born at a different time. You don't get to be the last of the Romans. That's okay. You don't get to fulfill your you know fantasies about uh, who you could have been if something had been otherwise in your upbringing or the time up till now, but you do get to fight for what is good and true now. So what you need to do is to take up the sword that you are given so that life may flourish within your family, within your church, within your nation. It's not there for your pleasure. It is there for the protection of what is good and what needs to be defended especially women and children. So take it up. It's going to be salutary for everybody, but especially for your soul when you do what you are called to do, like Justinian, accepting what has come before, both good and bad, and on the basis of all that was good that came before him, creating a new future and bringing out of the winter the spring. Don't play the game. Break it. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, 
and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.